Yeah, I just turned it on. <coughs> Thank you, Sam. <coughs> and behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, or answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass here in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been that, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, and besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had seen also a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then said he unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. <clears throat> Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. <clears throat> and he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake it, and gave unto them, and gave to them, and their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour, and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. <coughs> C.H. Spurgeon once said, A sorrow is nonetheless sharp because it is founded upon a mistake. <clears throat> Things are often not as they appear. To the eye of flesh, events in this world of fallen men are often shrouded in the darkness and present themselves in a shadowy and really a foreboding way. We often view our circumstances like the child in a dark room at night, a room in which every shadow becomes monstrous and the most innocent items become crawling and creeping things, crouching and ready to pounce on any bit of flesh that dares to remove itself from under the covers. The disciples in the chapter before us are in just such a place. There was cause for great rejoicing, but they were sad, perplexed, even terrified. But to be fair, everything in their world had just crashed in upon them. All the hopes of the last three years had ended suddenly and really horrifically. 
They thought that all was lost, but on the contrary, a great victory had been won right before their eyes. They had just witnessed the most monumental event in human history. It had played out right in front of them, but they had missed the triumph in their sadness. They had seen the bruised heel, but they had missed the crushed head. They had seen the suffering and dying Jesus, our Savior, but had missed the risen and triumphant Lord and Christ. His crown of thorns had purchased for them an incorruptible crown of glory, but all they had seen was a crown of mockery and shame. They missed that by his stripes they were to be healed. That those hours of darkness had swallowed up for them an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth, that every drop of that precious blood was crying out with a voice that shook the very heavens and that spoke better things than that of Abel. They did not know that the mocking and the scorn was going to give way to worship on that great and notable day when every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that this Jesus was Lord in Christ. Our text tells us that they were sad. They were witnesses of the salvation of God, and they were sad. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. The last three years had been amazing. They had just come through the best seminary education the world has ever known. They had seen the dumb speak, the blind see. They had witnessed the dead raised to life again. They had heard Christ say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But their sorrow was blinding their eyes. They had seen him die. And what they had seen was now their own reality. And we're sometimes guilty of the same thing, aren't we? If you've walked very long at all with the Lord, you have seen remarkable answers to prayer. You have. A look back reveals the hand of providence guiding our every step. You've known his gracious hand leading you through dark places. But often like the disciples, when faced with a new trouble, a new sadness, a new perplexity, a new breaking out of sin. We find ourselves in unbelief and doubt and even in despair. That even in the face of God's gracious dealings with us, we are prone to unbelief and fear. It is just here that we need Christ to meet us as he did those two on that road to Emmaus. The two men are unknown to us. There is debate as to who Cleopas might have been, but nothing very convincing. The point is, I think, that It could have been anyone on that road. There's nothing notable about the men. And the place they were going to is also shrouded in obscurity. Here again, there is no consensus as to its actual location. Luke's gospel tells us that it was seven miles from Jerusalem, but it doesn't even tell us in which direction. There is one interesting entry about Emmaus in Hitchcock's Bible Dictionary. And I only mention it uh, because I think it's instructive. In it, we are told that Emmaus means a people despised or obscure. So it's a place of no importance, and really a place that history has all but forgotten, a place that would probably not even be known to us at all, but for these two sad and lonely travelers. A place that one French traveler in the 17th century noted, quote, was not worth the trouble of having come out of the way to see. These men were not important. 
and they were going to a place that even history has passed by. It could have been anyone, and it could have been anywhere. And that is the point. This is a one-size-fits-all narrative. It does not matter who you are, and it does not matter what you are going through. This fits. It was here on this dusty road to obscurity that Christ met them. They were not at the tomb. <clears throat> they were not in Jerusalem with the other disciples. They were not seeking him, but he sought them. He found them. He engaged them. He taught them. But let's look at how they got to where they were to begin with. If we go back to verse 11, which I didn't read, uh, the first glimmerings of hope were dawning. A good report had come from the women who had visited the tomb. But we read, And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Their words seemed like idle tales. They refused to believe mere words. They had seen him taken lifeless from that cross. They had watched the stone rolled in front of the grave. It was simply a matter of fact. They had seen it with their own eyes. These women were obviously emotionally overwrought, and it's understandable, right? They probably felt sorry for them. A mere word was no match for what they had seen. So the words seemed as idle tales. The evidence to the contrary was just too overwhelming. These two men did not believe the report. <clears throat> that much is clear. They wouldn't have left Jerusalem if they had even a thought that Christ had risen. They were on that road because of what they did not believe. If it had not been so, their course would have not been so immediately reversed after their encounter. What they thought was reality was wrong. The text tells us in verse 21 that they had trusted or hoped that he would have redeemed Israel. But how? By throwing off the Roman yoke and restoring the throne of David? Perhaps. Their hope was dashed because it was not founded on the truth. He had come to redeem. He had come to redeem. But the redemption was far more reaching than they had imagined. He had come to redeem their souls. And they did not understand they had set their hope on what they could see. They had hoped. They had hoped to see such and such a thing happen in such and such a way. When this did not happen, their hope evaporated. Their hope had been founded in their own ideas of who Christ was and what he had come to do. And, whose I and those ideas, sadly, turned out to be wrong. They had a set of expectations that were not met. <coughs> and what they really needed was a new set of expectations. And that was where Christ met them, on a road to nowhere, with no hope. We know that when he had found them, they were sad. For he asked them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? It was visibly sadness, right? You can see them plodding along on their way as they discussed all that had happened. You can imagine how they must have looked as they just slowly walked along that road. A profound sadness had gripped their hearts, how exposed and helpless in the winds of circumstance they must have felt. And we sometimes feel that way, do we not? 
We can sometimes say with the psalmist in Psalm 77, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? We can walk with them through this valley, can't we? Job tells us that man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward, and we can bear witness to this. We can. It may be that we are currently walking in the green pastures and beside the still waters, but trouble will come. Perhaps sickness or death will draw its gloomy shades over our eyes or those we love. We can look out at the world around us, raging against God and reeling to and fro like a drunken man and wonder what will become of us. Perhaps it is our sin, our sin, that drives us to despair. Can there ever be victory? Can I hope that Christ will meet me here? Is there any hope? What will be our response? Where will we go for help? Well, the answer is before us. Christ comes to them and he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish ones sounds harsh to our ears, but it's not the same word in the Greek that is used for the wicked foolish. Christ was simply highlighting their slowness to comprehend. And as a result, their slowness of heart to believe all that was plainly revealed concerning what they had just witnessed. And so in tender love and compassion, he takes these two sad travelers by the hand and leads them through the scriptures. The remedy for their melancholy and doubt was not in them. He did not bid them look inward. It was not based in how they were to feel or in what they were to do. It was not even in the change of their circumstances. The reality was that he had already risen, just as he said, but they did not believe it. In fact, if that was all that was needed, he would not have hidden his identity from them. No. Rather, he spoke to their minds by opening up the scriptures. And in doing so, he set them to thinking aright. He began to battle for their minds and in the process won their hearts. Jesus opened the scriptures to them. These were disciples of Jesus. They they had already heard many of the things that he was telling them. And there's a tension here. It seems that all he really needed to do was to reveal himself to them, to, to pull the veil away from their eyes so they could see who he was. And he did, just not in the way we would expect. He was, in fact, doing something far more important than just showing up. We have a glimpse of this just a few days earlier, maybe weeks, I don't know exactly the timeline here, but in John 14, he told them, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He was showing them how they were to live without his bodily presence. How to live by faith, 
and not by sight. Beginning where Moses began, he taught them. And many of us share the desire expressed by Robert Hawker on this. He says, I have sometimes been led to wish that this heartwarming discourse of Jesus had been recorded. I know, I know I've thought that. But that is usually all the further we go. Hawker goes a little further. He says, but I have oft, but I have as often, as often as I've had that wish, found grace to check the wish as improper. Nay, I have learnt the blessedness intended from the concealment. For it prompts the soul under divine teaching to search after Christ in all those scriptures from whence the Lord preached to those two disciples. We read that the Lord began at Moses and all the prophets and not confining himself to these. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here we are taught, as plain as words can make it, that the whole body of scripture is concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on. And I am not encouraged, and am I not encouraged to hope that as Jesus drew near to those disciples while in the way and discoursing about their Lord, so will he draw near to me? And if Jesus made their hearts burn with holy fervor, will he not make mine? If Old Testament saints and New Testament believers were made partakers of such mercies then, why not the humble followers of Jesus now? How these hearts men's how these men's hearts <clears throat> must have risen in faith as each step kindled a greater understanding, a greater light, a greater view of their Savior. As they walked, their conversation upon these texts opened increasingly glorious visions of the one they loved. He was opening their minds to the real reality of the Word of God. Their eyes were being trained to see him spiritually, whereas before they had only seen him physically. And in the light of what they saw, everything began to change. What had before seemed dark and hopeless now sprang to light in living color before them. They had not seen defeat. They had just witnessed the dawning of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ they were now beginning to really see what had happened. They were seeing it from a totally new perspective, a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective, perspective of faith. They were being taught to view the world in the light of the scripture and the scripture as the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. They met Christ that day on the road, but not in the way that seems obvious. It was not his presence physically walking with them that made their hearts burn within them. They did not yet know who it was that was speaking to them. Their encouragement came not by the physical presence of Christ, but by his spirit through the word. We need to take notice of this. This meeting on the road to Emmaus is precious. It's precious because it could have been us. We can read this and think to ourselves that Christ met them, and that is all very encouraging and, and wonderful. But he really didn't meet them. At least not in the way we usually think. This is very easily just passed by. Consider this. 
as soon as they realized it was him, he vanished. Literally vanished into thin air right before their eyes. It doesn't seem odd that he first hid himself from them and then just vanished away as soon as they figured out who it was. When I first pondered that years ago, I wondered that the text does not next say immediately, and they were sad. Again. <laughs> Here they had been talking with Jesus for the better part of an afternoon, and when they realized who it was that was just talking to them, he's gone. He's just vanished. Why did he go so suddenly? I think Christ was showing them that it was no longer his bodily presence that would give them boldness and strengthen them and encourage them and that they no longer needed him to be there in the flesh teaching them, but that they had all they needed in the ministry of the Spirit to the written word. He was leaving, but he was leaving them with something better. Had he not just told them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. They had not known that it was him that walked with them, and it did not matter. It didn't. For it was by faith that they believed the things he had told them. Their hearts burned within them, not because he was there, but because the scripture had revealed him. It was the scriptures concerning Christ, not his presence with them, that changed their outlook. It is the scriptures that will change ours. Had it been otherwise... They would not have rejoiced after he left them. They did not need his bodily presence. They only needed to see him by faith and then to see the world through the eyes of faith in the risen Christ. Christ said, blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. And this, this is what is played out for us in this text. How different they must have looked as they returned to Jerusalem that night. We are not told anything about the return, but I cannot imagine that anyone looking on would have said, oh, those guys are sad. But what had changed? Nothing, really. Their circumstances hadn't changed. Just their minds. Just the way they were viewing those circumstances. Nothing had really changed. But everything had changed. It was a transformation wrought by the power of the Spirit through the Word in the hearts of those two men who now believed and again, it could have been us. It still can be us, right? We too face an uncertain future. We are perplexed. We have doubts. We are troubled by dark providences, troubled by sins that harass us and threaten to undo us. So what must we do? Most of the time, the circumstances in life that discourage and unnerve us are the things that are totally beyond our ability to manage, let alone control so like these men, we must realize that it is our perspective that must change, not our job, our spouse, our child, our president, or even our bank account. We may have deliverance from the difficulty or trial we face, and we should certainly look for it and pray for it. That is lawful. That is good. We should do that. But more than that, we need to view those things in the light of eternity and in the light of the goodness the boundless goodness of our Heavenly Father's love. If we view the rounding providences of life through the eyes of flesh, we will certainly despair. 
But there is a better way, and this text shows it to us. I used to wish I could have been one of Christ's disciples, <clears throat> that I could have heard him in person. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It just, but in my mind, I would think that it would have been better for me because I would have had all my questions answered. And all my fears would be dispelled. But this text tells us that that is not the case. These men found their way through the fear and found the answers they were looking for, not by being in his presence, not really, but by seeing him in the word. There is no substitute for the time we spend in the word of God. And there are no shortcuts. We can go to the scriptures and know that God will meet us there. We must go to the scriptures, for that is the only place we will find him. Let us search for him there. Let us not rest until we can say with them, did not our hearts burn within us while he walked with us in the way? And tonight, as we go to prayer, don't be discouraged by your doubts or by the distractions of your mind or the sins that so drag heavily on your soul. He still meets his people in the way. Turn your mind away from what you see and to the word for comfort. Look at the circumstances of life through the lens of the word, knowing that the real reality is only, only going to be seen that way. Bring your petitions to God, knowing that all the promises, both old and new covenant, are fulfilled. They are yes, and they are amen in him. Now, we've only got a few of us here tonight, so I'm going to ask all of you,